Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 65. I'm Steve Kwan. Hey everybody, Matt Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual, intelligent, and quarantined jiu-jitsu <laughs> approach. <laughs> yeah. So it is March 18th. Um, I'm six days into this self-quarantine thing. It's It sucks not rolling. <laughs> it, it does. That's actually the only thing that really bothers me. You know, working from home is not killing me. Spending a lot of time at home with my kid is not killing me. Relaxing is not killing me, but not being able to train really does suck. It sucks. Yeah. Uh, I did like a workout the other day by myself lifting weights. I was just getting pissed off as the workout was going on. I'm like, man, I should be doing jujitsu right now. This is craziness. And like, honestly, I'm just curious as to when will it be okay to, to roll again? Like, like when are we going to start seeing that people are training again or cuz cuz most gyms when they close have said like 2 weeks yeah but you know but that when they're saying 2 weeks that basically means 2 weeks so subject we can to change yeah. obviously but i mean like i guess it'll be interesting when gyms finally start deciding to open again and and whether or not people will find it socially acceptable or what the what the uh, the numbers look like right yeah it's going to be interesting i mean in china they've been in lockdown now for quite a while it's been like 2 months i think mm-hmm. and they're just starting to get on the other side of the curve so i mean if our system follows theirs you know it could be 3 months before life kind of goes back to normal it could be a lot longer you know the question is is this thing going to hit us in waves or is it a one and done um and of course what comes out of the science community matters a lot if really effective treatments or vaccines come out then this problem may become a lot less serious really really quickly but yeah it's going to be interesting to see how quickly it takes for life to get back to normal mhm i have a friend who has a friend in korea and he says that that uh, they've already started training again, which is nice. So yeah, hopefully it won't take too long. I'm, I'm remaining hopeful that it's not going to be very long, although everyone's got a different opinion. So I think we just have to wait and see. Yeah. There's no way to know, right? I mean, this is unprecedented. Like the closest thing to this whole situation was 1918, but back then, like the world was a very different place. You know, you didn't have things like the internet where you could coordinate a worldwide movement to get people to stay at home. Like that, that totally changes the game. And you also didn't have things like FaceTime where, you know, or, you know, the ability to work remote, that kind of stuff really changes the options that we have for a virus like this. So I'm just hoping that this leads to one of the best case scenarios and not one of the worst case scenarios. It's kind of interesting if you go on social and you can see for those brave people who are still posting about their training, it's like, you know, that some people are posting in seminar situations or class situations, most gyms have closed. And then there's other people who are clearly just, you know, 
it's just them and another person or whatever. I mean, is that still effective if it's just two people training? Well, there's, that, I mean, that's not really social distancing, but it seems so harmless, you know, it, it all depends on like, I'm tempted to grab my buddy across the hall and be, cause he trains too. and be like, Hey, let's go roll. But yeah, then, you know, it's all about risk mitigation, right? I mean, you're going to be around your family, but the more people that you add to that circle of people you connect to, the more risky it gets. So really the best thing to do is to eliminate any unnecessary like social proximity that you can. And really with jujitsu, I mean, that's got to be one of the worst activities that there can be in terms of spreading a virus, right? It's got to be absolutely terrible. Uh, so that's, it's probably in everyone's best interests to just cool it for a while, take some time off and hope that by doing that, we can make this a short experience rather than a really long experience. Because if people take shortcuts and they try to come up with ways to keep training, I mean, the worst case scenario is we get to a point where it's been like two years and <laughs> we still haven't controlled this stupid thing. So I, I'm hoping it doesn't get that far, but you never know. Yeah. I, I've been very impressed with how the jiu-jitsu community has sort of come together and all these world-class grapplers are offering, uh, you know, free online training. They're offering, um, not solo, but uh, limited, you know, basically quarantine training sessions, whereas, mm -hmm. you know, it'll be keen in with like one or two other people today. They, uh, today it's the 18th. They did a session where they were wearing street clothes. I thought that was really cool. Um, and then a lot of websites, we already talked about BJJ fanatics, judo fanatics, wrestling fanatics are all giving away free instructionals plus, uh, digitsu. I don't know if the deal's still going to be on by the time this episode airs, but they're offering, something like 25 different free instructionals right now. So I just went on and downloaded almost all of them today. So the, the, the amount of content right now is just, there's way more content than you could ever get. And it's really awesome to see that people are donating their hard work and, and, uh, you know, really paying, trying to pay it forward for this, uh, epidemic, even though none of us can train, I know we're all dying to train, but just hang in there and, uh, you know, we'll get through it and all that and just keep studying and staying ready. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, this kind of ties into us. I mean, we've been trying for the last year to give you guys something different, something valuable that you can use to learn jujitsu and supplement your training in a new and novel way. And I mean, right now, let's face it, something like a podcast is probably a really valuable asset for learning when you can't actually be on the mat. So our hope is that our model here and the strategy that we use proves to be even more useful to you guys during this time. We mentioned this earlier in an announcement on the feed, but we've also launched a Patreon. Um, so Matt and I, of course, you know, Matt, we both have experienced gym closures for Matt. The gym is actually his own gym, right? That's his full-time job. Um, and my wife, of course, um, her work has dried up as well. So we are impacted financially and we want to keep supporting and creating content for you guys during this time. Um, but we do at this point, we really need your help. If you want to support us on Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash BJJ mental models. We'll plug it again at the end of the show. And from there, you know, not only can you support the show, but we'll also make sure to give you extra and hopefully incredibly useful content in addition to the regular podcast. So really guys, I mean, I, I know that for a lot of you, this isn't an option because things are tough for everybody, but if you do have the ability to support us financially right now, anything that you could do would be greatly appreciated. So please just do nip over there and become a patron if you can afford it. Yeah. Again, really appreciate the ongoing support guys. If you like the show, if it's helped you out in any way, or you, you, you can tolerate Steve and I's, 
really shitty jokes. I've, I've been told, I've been told from Reddit that our, our humor is terrible and we should yeah. just shut up. Yeah. And, and if you, if you're one of those people that loves the show, but you don't like our, our, our sense of humor, go fuck yourself. We're not changing. <laughs> but if you like our sense of humor and you enjoy the show and you want even better content <clears throat> and you want us to continue growing this show, uh, the way that we want to do our, our, our vision for the future, please give us, uh, Contribute in any way you can, assuming you can already support yourself. It would be greatly appreciated. Thank you guys so much. Definitely. So plug aside, um, let's talk about the topic of the day, which is adversity. Now, adversity is something that we all experience in life. And jujitsu, of course, is a, kind of like a stomping ground when it comes to adversity. And mm. well, I mean, jujitsu in a lot of ways is all about adversity. And learning to cope with that adversity is one of the things that I think really differentiates the people who stick with it for the long term. Mm. Um, but adversity is also a very important topic in the world that we live in today. We are all experiencing a level of adversity that hasn't been seen since our great grandparents, right? I mean, this this is something that we don't really have a model for. And now Matt and I are not molecular biologists and we are not, uh, we do not have medical doctorates, but what we can do is maybe talk about some of the strategies that you can use mentally to manage and even grow from adversity as opposed to letting it defeat you. I think that's something that will, you know, we can put in our minds and we can leave it there and use it for when we're back on the mats, but also it can help us in our daily lives right now. Yeah, I like how you say grow from adversity and that's a great way to put it because really adversity is it's like a muscle, you know, you have to train it, it needs to be broken down, you need to be put through very uncomfortable situations and really work that muscle before it grows and then your your tolerance for adversity and eventually your your uh, desire to find adversity so that you can grow to even higher levels uh continues and it's something that I've discovered through jiu-jitsu culinary arts, you know, high stressful situations, um, or sorry, high stress situations really, uh, can condition this muscle so that you become someone who's not easily shaken, you know, stress and challenges are, uh, not looked at as a negative thing, but more something that can, uh, offer you growth and, uh, you know, evolution. So definitely I think the proper way to look at adversity for myself, I, you know, I think the, the first thing you want to do when you're, you're looking at adversity is, is this a battle that's even winnable? Is this mm -hmm. something, because if you're going to take on a, a task that's not possible or where there literally is no gain at the end, I don't know um, if it is necessarily a productive challenge. Whereas if it's something like, you know, a tournament or, uh, you know, you're starting your first business or something like that. Um, you, you don't just want to run into something if you're not ready, or if you know that there's a high chance you're going to fail. Uh, that's, that's something that I would say, uh, if there's a high chance you're going to fail, it's not necessarily adversity at that point. It's more just foolish. Yeah. You, you've got to do a risk versus reward calculation, right? I mean, we've said in the past, and this is true, right? That really all growth in life comes from discomfort. It comes from pushing yourself beyond the boundaries of what you're comfortable in. If you stay within your comfort zone, you'll basically live your whole life running on a hamster wheel, right? And so a lot of people do that, but I if, did that for a long time. Yeah. Everyone has, everyone's done that. And the to really succeed and to really grow as a person uh, and to grow your wealth, uh, to grow your happiness, you need to constantly be pushing yourself outside of that comfort zone, which to your point is a muscle, right? It's something yeah. that you have to learn to do. But there is also the other side of the coin, which is that 
not all discomfort is good. Like it has to be discomfort that is survivable and worth the effort, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, an example is I could, if I wanted to go skydiving. I know that some people consider that to be an amazing experience. I don't. I don't see the value. I scares the shit out of me. I don't want to risk my life on something like that. So I'm just not going to do it. Like I, I, I know that some people do that kind of stuff and they get value out of it. But for me, I've done that calculation and there, there is a limit at what point you, and where you have to realize like, okay, maybe this is not the best way to actually grow and, and to improve. Now, again, a lot of people might disagree with me on that example, but everyone is going to have their own guidelines for what they're looking for in life. And based on that, you're going to have to figure out uh, what, what types of adversity you want to attack. Yeah. I would suggest though that everyone should have at least within their life, two or three things that they really believe they can be amazing at and that they're really passionate about. And those are the areas where you should focus on pushing yourself. You don't want to do this across the board in everything, right? Like for example, I know that accounting is important. I know that I, I know that a lot of people love accounting. I know that I have, you know, that has to be done every single year. It's just not something that interests me. So I'm not going to invest my resources in trying to become a good accountant, but I might spend my time on the mats. I might spend my time doing the job that I love. I might spend my time wor- uh, with my family. Those are things where by investing time and by challenging myself, I can grow. So you have to kind of pick your shots and decide where, where are the areas in my life that I actually want to face adversity in order to grow. Yeah, that's a really, <clears throat> a really good point, Steve. Like, um, once you assess sort of risk versus reward, you know, you really have to ask yourself, you know, if I go through with this challenge, this adversity that I'm facing, what are the things that I could gain from it? And what are the things that I could lose from it? Mm-hmm. Uh, when you, when you brought up skydiving, it kind of actually made me remember something that Rob actually recent, uh, recently offered me, my professor, Rob Bernacki, Island Top Team talk about him every episode basically he's a he's a car guy as we all know he, oh yes we know everyone it. knows he did actually cancel his next car he was going to get a porsche but now it, because of all this he was uh you know he, he had to pump the brakes on that which i think is a smart move but a few months ago he said hey man i really you know he's he goes to the track a lot in nanaimo mm-hmm. and he loves racing his car is super fast and if you've ever driven with rob <laughs> the thought terrifies me <laughs> it's terrifying like uh and i I do enjoy going fast, but at the same time, I think it's because I have kids now that I just, I look at the risk first reward and uh, I think about it and I think about car accidents, which are a literal phobia of mine. They they terrify me. Um, Being stuck inside a car as it gets into an accident is something that doesn't really interest me at all. And uh, Rob asked me, Hey man, like I'm going out to the track a lot and I, I want each one of my, you know, guys, if they're interested to come out with me. And, uh, I've seen pictures of Rory, after they're going on the track with Rob, he's literally vomiting. And, uh, and uh, you know, Rory's a, Rory's a weak little little bitch, but at the same yeah. time... R- Rory has not taken... Actually, no, he has taken the first strike program, from what I understand. Oh, yeah. So, sorry. He, he's he's alpha, but he's just not on the same <laughs> level as, as Ari is. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but I just thought about it, and I'm like, you know, what do I gain from, from getting in this car with Rob? Like, you know, yeah, it could be awesome. Maybe I'm facing a fear where I'm going around a racetrack really fast. But at the same time, it's like, I could die. Yeah. Um, it would be really tragic. And if I just died from this and chances are, I'm not going to die, but you really, it's just, it's just something that I decided not to do. Whereas if it's like a, a tournament or I get offered a match, um, you know, something like that. And, and it's against a really good guy. Uh, and even if I have like a high chance of losing because 
maybe it's a it's a high profile match you know it'd be it'd be worth it to go through and do it because the preparation that's involved the the the, the you know the the mindset and everything that comes along with the, with that the the preparation for that match at the end there's a payoff at the end you've gained mentally and spiritually and your you know your stress tolerance is higher you've been under a big stage it's just more experience for a competitor so you got to kind of like you said i think what you said about picking shots is really good steve and that's a good way to put it is cuz you can't put your resources 100% in every direction or you just go nowhere yeah if you try to be kind of good at everything you're not really going to wind up being great at anything. Uh, and this is something that took me a long time to realize. You know, I, I used to be so focused on shoring up my areas of weakness, you know, the things that I'm not particularly great at. But one thing I realized over time was that you're far better off identifying the things that you're great at and leveraging those to the maximum and, and growing that area. Because if you're so focused on just, you know, finding your weaknesses and patching them up, if those weaknesses have no bearing on your life, then you're, it's a distraction, right? That's kind of a form of defensive thinking where you're so focused on the the things that you're not great at that you're ignoring the things that you are good at. And this happens a lot in careers, right? Where maybe, for example, you are uh, amazing at marketing, but you're not a very good people manager. And you might think, oh, you know, I'm a terrible people people manager. I've got to shore up that skill. I'll never get promoted unless I learn this. Well, is that really the case? Like, if you're really great at one thing, it's probably best to focus on becoming the best at that one thing rather than distributing your time among activities that could be better suited by other people. Like, you know, if you look at really amazing leaders, they're not great at every single thing. They're usually great at one or two things. Usually they're great at leadership <laughs> and that's kind of it, but they don't have to necessarily be the best at everything else. That's why they build a team. They build a team of experts who can fill in the holes around them. And, um, you know, training jujitsu is very similar where when, if you look at guys who build like high level coaching camps, you know, part of the reason you have those coaches is you're looking for people who can fill the holes that you have and, and kind of, they can provide things that you can't provide by yourself. You build a team to complement your own weaknesses so that together you're stronger than you are individually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I mean, really when we're talking about dealing with adversity on another level, we're basically talking about dealing with stress and, and stress management, which is, um, such a big part of culinary arts. My, my previous career, such a big part of, uh, being a competitor, even as a businessman in ways, you know, anytime where you're, it's your neck and your, your name on the line and you're on a big stage and you're putting yourself out there, or many people are relying on you to fill in a, a particular role, it can be very stressful. So like I said, it, it, it's, it's not for everyone too. Like, it, you know, some people have really big, uh, problems dealing with certain stresses. Like, you know, when I used to cook, I would see it, I would see people online during the lunch rush just crumble and have to mm -hmm. run away and crying. You know, yeah. it, it would literally, the bill machine just continuously going would reduce people to tears and bills are piling in. We would, you know, back in the day, we would call it a whiteout, which basically means that the entire, uh, the entire bill uh, holders, like the, you know, all the orders are lined up above and you can read all the orders. There'd be like 20 of them. We call it a whiteout and it sucks <laughs> when you're, when, and you know, you're just like grinding. And you, if you make one mistake, uh, it can cost you dearly and it can cost your entire de team dearly. So that being able to make decisions rapidly while the stress is still accumulating, while it's still coming in and you know, you're, you know, you got a lot of work ahead of you. That's a skill. That's a muscle that needs to be developed and 
not everyone has the tools to do it. And that I is think, true. And I think that's where you, like you mentioned, Steve, about how certain teams have leaders and then they have, uh, you know, people that are sort of the right hand men or woman. And, uh, you know, everyone has different roles. I'm good at this. I'm good at this. I'm good at this, but you need to have a good leader because, mm-hmm. uh, without good leaders, or what's, what's that saying? Jocko says there are no bad teams, just bad leaders. Yes. And that's a really important thing to understand, especially if you are one of those people who is aspiring to be a leader in whatever role it is, is that you're in, is that, uh, you're going to be facing a lot of adversity and you're either going to rise to the occasion or you're going to crumble. And if basically what I would say to myself is just, I refuse to crumble. Like I, mm-hmm. if I fail, it's going to be because, uh, of an unforeseen circumstance, like the fridge is going to go down or I'm going to get some horrible burn that's going to keep me from working or whatever, or, you know, unrelated, something unrelated to my own responsibility. There's no way that I'm going to allow myself to crumble in a stressful situation. And once you do that over and over again, you become battle hardened. And then you can take that skill with you into any aspect of life. So now if you're preparing for a competition, you go in there and it's stressful, but you know that you've been there before. Uh, one of the, one of the things that I did when I did pans at a purple at purple belt for the first time, after I did that, I realized I can do any tournament mm-hmm. because it's at such a big, it's such a big tournament that, you know, under, after you fought on that stage, it's almost grown your, uh, your, your muscle to handle adversity to such a, a degree that things become less stressful in everyday life. You know, if I go to work and my boss is yelling at me, <laughs> it's, I don't, I don't feel the same, uh, intimidation. I don't feel the same stress anymore. I know that I've been to more difficult situations and then it's just, it accumulates over time and it becomes a skill. It becomes something that you can take with you everywhere. So, yeah. And it's amazing how much, uh, you can learn just by test stress testing yourself, even just a single time. Like I remember back in 2008 when the economy just went through the, you know, just went through the tubes, uh, because of the, uh, because of the, uh, the housing crash. I remember I came into work one day and half the people were gone. And just because there was, there was no money anymore. Uh, the economy had gone south and I kind of realized at that point I had to start taking control of my, my own career. So I basically went independent and started contracting instead of working for a company. And that was the first time that I'd really been like self-employed or or started my own business. That was something that prior to that, I thought I like, I just didn't think I would be cut out to do. And I thought, oh, you know, there's so much I don't know. There's so much I can't do. But then when I realized like, you know, look, you look at the direction the economy is going and you might have to take control of the situation yourself. I did it. (laughs) And honestly, after like a month, it was fine. It's, It's amazing how like these things seem to be just insurmountable stresses and you're, cause you're so caught up in your head, but after you do it like one time, you're like, oh, okay, fine. Now it's just a routine. Yeah. You know, it's, but that, that in itself can be dangerous because then if you get stuck in that routine, you might prevent yourself from figuring out how do I even get better and how do I get better and get yeah. better. Right. Yeah. We, we are creatures of habit. We are definitely, you know, beings that love routine in our daily life and basically anything new is uncomfortable until it becomes routine. Um, you know, I, I was transitioning my career from cooking into martial arts. I had started my gym and I think I was about three years in when I finally decided to quit. And I was basically telling my wife, you know, okay, like I'm thinking about quitting now. I'm thinking about quitting the gym's starting to, you know, I got, I'm, I'm almost breaking even. I think I can, I think I can cover costs or whatever. And then one day at work, I forget what it was, but just something happened. And I was just like, you know what, this is my last day. (laughs) And then I told my wife and she, 
got so fucking pissed off at me because <laughs> I didn't even run it by her, right? And and rightfully so. Like she's my partner. We have a child, um, and it, you know she wants to know where the income's coming from. And you know you've been putting a decade of your life into this skill that you're really good at that you know you could go higher with, and now you're quitting it to to just do your passion. So it makes it makes sense for her to be uh, uncomfortable by it. But like you said, after a few months, it was just like, oh, well, this is great. And yeah. now, and now, well, you know, before the COVID-19 happened, I felt like I was, I was really, you know, making some good headway with the business. Um, and now it's starting to slow down and that's another story or whatever. But, uh, you know, once you get into the routine of, 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 you know, that new, that new career, wherever direction you're trying to go, it becomes much easier. And I think so many people kind of get stuck in their daily rut and then the idea of, incorporating something new is really difficult. Yeah. And because you're already pulled in so many directions. Every day is so busy for the, you know, you got kids, you got to commute. There's a million reasons not to do something. That's the thing. It's very easy to talk yourself out of almost anything. And this, this is another form of defensive thinking. And I see this a lot at work where you go to people. So much. Yeah. You go to people with an idea and they've got, they already have queued up a dozen reasons, reasons why they'll never fly. Right. Like here's the reality. It's easy to say no. Anyone can say no. But what's really impressive is people who can take an idea and make it work. Um, so unfortunately, this is something that we also do to ourselves where we, we say no to ourselves and we might want to do something, but it scares us. And so we can come up with a dozen justifications as to why we should never do it. And we talk mm. ourselves out of it before we even get off the ground. Um, Grant Cardone, who's a, a relatively well-known sales guy, he writes a lot of books about like the mindset of sales and of growing a business. And one of the things that he says is, if you ever encounter a situation where you realize you're afraid of something, do it right away. Drop whatever mm-hmm. you're doing and do it right then. Because that signal in your brain that you're afraid of something is the sign that you should probably do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, that's that- where there's gain. That's where there's growth. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Now that doesn't mean that, you know, you should be like, obviously you're going to be afraid to jump off a bridge. That doesn't mean you should jump off a bridge. Well, we but, already talked about risk first reward, yeah. benefit versus uh negative. Right? Yeah. I mean, you, you have to couch all of this conversation in a risk versus reward analysis. Not every type of adversity is good. Some types of adversity, if it isn't going, if there's no upside for you, you'll want to avoid it. But for the situations where there is upside, that's where you don't want to let fear and defensive thinking hold you back. Um, a way that I heard this described that I think makes a lot of sense is what you want to find in life is you know, you want to find the center of the Venn diagram where you, something that you're good at, something that you're passionate about and something that you can make money off of. You want to find something that checks all three of those boxes and that's what you want to focus on as a career, right? And to your point about, you know, spending 10 years in culinary and thinking like, oh man, I spent 10 years in this as a waste mm-hmm. of 10 years. Well, the only thing worse is than wasting 10 years is wasting another 10 years because exactly. you were afraid to move and try something new. Yeah, that like when I when you talk about like running at your fears and facing your fears, <clears throat> Um, I always try and teach that to the kids at my club because of course, you know, just like adults, uh, many children have many fears and it's normal when you're a kid to to be afraid of things. But uh, I try and teach them that fear can be harnessed for, for, uh, you know, your power. It can motivate you and to identify things that you're afraid of, not just as dangerous things, but possibly things that could benefit you in the long Mm -hmm. run. You know, just because you're afraid of something doesn't mean that you should shy away from it. And to your point, Steve, when you said about how, you know, the worst thing about uh, 
the worst thing about having cops are coming ten, for us. Yeah, maybe maybe they can hear that or not. Yeah, I don't know if you guys can hear. It. There's a siren in the background. Yeah, we uh, putting ten years in a trade into a trade and then deciding that you're going to quit. You know that that's a huge step. And the only thing worse than doing that and failing would be to never even try. And that's basically the realization that I came to when I had to switch careers was, okay, I've reached, I've reached a ceiling now at my career where if I want to go higher, I have to start making some real serious sacrifices. Those sacrifices include time with my uh, family and also time away from jujitsu. And then I just ran it through the risk first reward or the, you know, the, is, is it worth it or is it not worth it? And it, it didn't fall in line with my goals. So I made the really difficult choice of putting behind a skill that I had really worked hard on for the last over a decade, you know, right out of high school, I went and started to do my apprenticeship and got that out of the way. And then I was doing this and then I, and I've never been happier. It, it was, it was such a freeing thing to have my own school uh, because I knew that I wanted to do jujitsu for a life. I knew for life. I knew that it wasn't something that it was just going to go away that if I, you know, no matter what I did, I would always want to do jujitsu. And then that's when I thought about what you talked about, Steve, with the Venn diagram, I would just be like, okay, well, jujitsu is something that I'm, I'm moderately good at. Uh, it's a passion of mine and I feel like I can monetize it now. So why not try and make a career out of that? And, mm -hmm. you know, it, it was very nerve wracking and, uh, you know, stressful to do that. But for those of you out there who have a passion, who are thinking about doing something like that, I mean, it's, it's the best thing that you can do for yourself if, if, if it works out. So here's, here's what I would say. If you're in that position, like I was, and you have a challenge or you have, you know, you want to change your careers or whatever, and you ask yourself, is it, is the risk versus the reward? You know, what, the negatives, do the, do the positives outweigh the negatives in this experience? And then you decide, yes, it is. I, it, it would be worth it for me to quit my job and to open this company or whatever then I think the best way that you can deal with it, not only to help manage the adversity and, uh, you know, and not guarantee, but give you a high percentage of success rate in, in whatever endeavor you're going to do. It's really important to be good at planning and mm -hmm. to, you know, this is something that Gary Tonin, I remember he made a post a few months ago about planning and he's saying, uh, am I scared when I go into a fight? Obviously I'm scared, but, um, if my preparation was good, then I'm less scared. I have, yeah. I have the ability to go in there knowing that I'm prepared and being prepared is a huge boost of confidence in any endeavor, whether it's jujitsu competition, starting a business, right. Uh, you know, leaving your career. So I, I didn't just up and leave my career. I'd been planning my escape for probably the better half of two years. Mm -hmm. So, or, or the better part of two years, I should say. So, um, it's not like I'm just jumping in. That would be careless. It's more important. Uh, I would never jump into a competition with no preparation. That would not make any sense at all, right? But if I prepare hard, I study, I study the rules, I do my conditioning, I do my dieting, I make sure that everything's on point, I train with the best guys I can, then I'm more confident going into a, uh, into a competition and I feel like I can manage the stress and I can, uh, you know, the adversity is not such a, a big mountain anymore. It's a little bit more manageable for me. Yeah. You know, it reminds me of that old quote from Eisenhower that plans are useless, but planning is indispensable. And that's totally just so true. Like the reality is when you're doing anything that is remotely challenging, nothing ever goes according to plan. <laughs> like it just doesn't. And that's if you, true. then if you think it is, then you're just <clears throat> deceiving yourself. But the act of planning is so critical because even yeah. if nothing goes according to plan, 
planning forces you to think through everything that could happen. And as a result of that, you're going to uncover a lot of blind spots. Mm. You're going to learn a lot. And by doing that activity, it's going to give you the confidence that you've thought things through and the knowledge to take action no matter what happens. Uh, a good example is martial arts itself, right? I mean, I've, I've never really been in a fight in my adult life, but I took jujitsu for self-defense. And I, I get Ari's thing. Yeah, I should do his thing. But I feel like I've spent a lot of time planning. Like I've spent 10 years plus learning how to defend myself. And as part of that planning, of course, I have no idea how like a street fight would go down. But I'm confident that I've prepared myself well for it. And that gives you confidence that bleeds over to all walks of life. You know, they say that martial arts are so great for confidence. And I think that's a big part of the reason why they are is because yeah, sure. they force you to be planned for one of the worst things that can happen to you. And of course, you're going to be confident if you've planned for it, right? Having contingency plans, even if you never have to use them, makes you feel confident. I mean, another very relevant example is these freaking lunatics right now who are hoarding toilet paper like they're chipmunks, right? I mean, it's, it's so weird. Um, my, my wife looked up, apparently there's a German word for this. It's called like hamster calf or something, but basically it describes it, Richard Gere wrote that. Maybe. <laughs> uh, but basically it's like the act of hoarding something similar to the way that a hamster hoards food in its cheeks, right? Yeah. Um, and that's exactly what's happening now. Also People, Richard Gere. Yeah. <laughs> the way but, Richard Gere hoards hamsters in his cheeks. <laughs> Anyway, uh, but no, that's not funny. Don't make jokes. Fuck off. Hey, I, I am all for like a Richard Gear anus joke. I mean, anyone who comes to this podcast not expecting like butt humor, they're totally in the wrong place. Yeah. So it's funny. I actually got an email from someone who said, um, you know, you know, when I started the podcast, I didn't really like the butt and the taint humor, but I've kind of grown to like it. I said, yeah, you have. You've grown from yeah. discomfort. <laughs> yeah, you've grown from discomfort. <laughs> So it's, it's uh, not that the taint humor is bad. It's just that it requires a degree of conditioning. And part of this yes. podcast, this podcast is your training. Uh, but <laughs> anyway, oh, what on earth were we talking about? Oh, yes. Planning. Toilet paper shortages. Yes, toilet paper shortages. But even this COVID-19 thing, I mean, granted, I have no idea what's going to happen. But I've done as much research as I reasonably can on what this thing is on what it can do, on how to prepare yourself. And I feel like I've taken a calm and measured response. I don't have a guest bedroom full of toilet paper. You know, I, I feel like I feel a lot better knowing that I understand the enemy and that I understand what I have to do. And that act of planning, it gives you confidence, right? And it, it makes you ready. So that's something that is so critical is never underestimate the act of planning. And that's part of why really thinking about return on investment is important because if before you leap, you think about, okay, what are all of the things that could go wrong? How am I going to deal with that? What is the worst case scenario? What's the benefit to me? You ask these relatively simple questions and you'll feel a lot more ready at the end of the day. And that's really a good strategy for dealing with stress. Yeah, what's the deal with toilet paper companies just not having enough product? Like what's is do they need to chop the trees down faster and get the fabrication of the toilet paper quicker? Like what's what is going on? It's it's been Oh, like two weeks now that we've had no toilet paper? It's really, really weird. I think the problem is it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? There is no shortage of toilet paper. Toilet paper is easy to make. I mean, where we live in the Vancouver area, 
We've got like a ton of toilet paper manufacturing plants just like right here. We can make tons. I think they're building up the the, the supply and demand. <laughs> well, I, I think actually it's just it's artificial scarcity caused by just people freaking out and deciding that this thing is something they need to hoard. And because some people decided that, everyone else said, well, I don't agree with this, but everyone else is hoarding it. So if I want to have toilet paper this month, I better go buy it. And it's so, so weird. It, it's a, a fascinating exercise in human psychology. And frankly, it's depressing how stupid we all are. See, I think people just saw the quarantine coming and they knew that the uh, the amount of whacking off would increase greatly. <laughs> so they needed to hoard as much toilet paper to facilitate said whacking off. I've, I've already heard the theory that there's going to be like another baby boom generation nine months from now, which is actually probably very plausible that that can Because happen. all people are going to be doing is having sex in quarantine? Basically. And well, and also whenever a disaster concludes and people realize they can get on with life again, one of the first things that they do is have a ton of kids. <laughs> so that very yeah. well could happen. Yeah. And if and uh, they should. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, God, I mean, if, if as many people die as people think are going to die, then we're going to need to repopulate. But that's a depressing topic. I, I recommend um, – we've mentioned Dan Carlin on the podcast yes. before. He's got a show, uh, Hardcore History, and one of the episodes – Unfortunately, I can't find it on Spotify or YouTube, but on his website, I think it's like a buck a show or something. It's, Dan Carlin is awesome. It's like if awesome. You, if you want to talk about another like podcast creator that you should support, um, yeah. Dan Carlin. Like if you listen to what we yak about and you think, man, I really like these guys, but I just wish we could have this without the jujitsu. <laughs> That's basically Dan Carlin. Yeah, like I, I love learning about history and military history and things like that, and he his shows are so good. Um, he's got one on the Black Plague. Have you heard you heard that one? I I might have. I can't even remember what it's called. It might be called Plague. I can't remember, but it's it's so good, and it really uh, it talks about the the plague that happened, you know, back in the day, and um, and it was just like you know a third of the population of Europe wiped out, and yeah, it's really yeah. interesting to read about. That's why I, you know truthfully i i hear about the coronavirus and it's like it's not putting up the same numbers as something like that even though we're still it's still kind of in its infancy but um it's it's just puts things in perspective you know when uh they would have family members just dying weekly and, yeah and, yeah uh, they would have as you know lots of kids because they would know that a lot of the kids aren't going to survive yeah right? and even not going back that far if you like hear stories of like the 1918 flu where there'd be families and there'd be like 10 kids and then next month there'd be one kid <laughs> you know it's yeah. this is a, a different situation so my my wife is actually a molecular biologist and um so she this is an area that she knows a lot about and one of the things that she said is when she was talking with her friends who are also all molecular biologists they were saying like in terms of a pandemic this is the best case scenario because it could have been like SARS or it could have been MERS or it could have been one of these things that kills like tons and tons of people. I mean, 2% or whatever of the human population dying is terrible. But in terms of pandemics, this it could have been a lot worse than this. Um, and the other, the other thing to bear in mind too, I mean, let's be a little bit optimistic here. Like I've spent a lot of time reading about this stupid virus for the past few months. And one thing that we have to bear in mind that is different is we have – more technology and more capability than we ever have. Yeah. And one of we the- We can synchronize things like social distancing. Yes. Yeah. And one of the things about human beings is we, you know, yes, in our lifetime, everyone has spent all of their time bickering about politics and this and that. And it's very depressing when you hear about it, but we've never experienced an event in our lifetime where all of humanity has had to rally behind a single cause, right? Even in like World War II, there were still 
tribes. But in this yeah. case, there is it's like everyone's in one boat versus the stupid virus. And I think what we're going to see is that we're going to be shocked by what 7 billion people can accomplish when they march in unison. It's going to be an incredible thing to see. Like, for example, three months ago, we didn't even know this stupid virus existed, right? Like we didn't even know what it was. Three months later, I mean, yeah, we haven't cured this thing, but we've like fully sequenced the damn thing. We've shipped that information across the world so that everyone can make testing kits. We've created like a, a worldwide program for social distancing and quarantine or quarantine to cut down on the spread of this thing. And although, I mean, honestly, we're probably still quite a ways off, we already have treatments and vaccines in trial. And that's all been done in like three months. A lot of companies can't even make a fucking website in three months. And these guys have been able to go from not even knowing what this thing is to being that far along. Like, I think this is actually going to, at the end of the day, really impress everyone with how much we were able to accomplish when we all were able to rally around one thing. And I hope that that teaches our generation something about the power of unity rather than bickering. Because let's face it, we've lived very comfortable lives. And I think think because we've been so comfortable, we have to find something to, to basically to argue about, right? We have to find something. And I think as a result, we spent a lot of time arguing about things that we've realized this month are maybe not as important as we thought they were. Yeah. Like we, we are a culture that is obsessed with being comfortable. Right now I'm wearing flip-flops, which I wear everywhere and track pants. Yeah. I I am (laughs) ass naked right now. Yeah. Yeah. So no, but, but that, that is something that I I find was interesting is because when, um, you know, when this whole thing started, the big pushback to social distancing is people saying like, I can't afford to make that kind of sacrifice. I'm not going to make a sacrifice for this. And I'm thinking like, really, you're being told to sit on the fucking couch. Like what kind of sacrifice is that? You can sit on the couch for a bit. Now, granted, this is going to be rough for the economy, but in the grand scheme of things, like I think we have a good plan. And I think that as long as everyone sticks to it, in, as a whole, we'll come out of this thing okay. But yeah. that's actually a good transition. You know, a, a big part of talking about stress is what to do when a situation in your life, basically you have to choose between like two different situations. Like, do I stay in my job or do I look for another job? These are interesting situations where you're basically going out there and looking for opportunity. What do you do when adversity strikes, where rather than you choosing between a good two different opportunities, one of which is good or one of which is bad, something terrible happens, which forces you to make a decision that maybe you weren't ready to make. Like some examples would be like if your preparation isn't there or just like, or you, you were completely blindsided. Like what happens if you, in the context of jujitsu, you experience a terrible injury. What happens if uh, you train at someone else's gym and they're suddenly forced to shutter and close their doors? In the case of COVID-19, what happens if in a three-month period, the world is overtaken by this mysterious virus, right? Like not all stress is self-inflicted, right? Sometimes, well, Mm -hmm. actually that's not true. All stress is self-inflicted, but not all causes of stress are. Sometimes the cause of stress might be you trying to choose whether to stay or leave a job. But sometimes the stress, the cause of stress might be that something has happened to you. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, like, let's take this back to jujitsu. You know, how do you deal with adversity? You know, what do you do if you experience a, a devastating surprise injury or yeah. if your opponent pulls out of a fight or yeah. if all tournaments in the fucking world get canceled <laughs> because yeah. of the stupid virus? I think if an opponent pulls out of a fight, that is, uh, not that big of a deal unless you are, you know, unless you really 
lose a lot of money from that. And let's face it, in jujitsu, that's not really an issue. Um, but definitely the example of an injury is a very real example that we can all relate to. I can relate to at Brown Belt, I tore my meniscus and partially tore my ACL really bad and had to get my meniscus cleaned. And it was, it was hard because let me, let me just tell you what my experience was like, injured myself in a tournament. And then for the next few weeks, my knee was stuck at a 90 degree angle. Then finally it started to open. I started doing physio. It felt better. You know, uh, anyone who's been through knee injuries, specifically meniscus injuries knows how nagging they are. Um, and it felt, it would feel good after about a month or two, uh, I would, uh, after a month I would get back into training and then uh, a few weeks would go by and then just, just doing a nothing movement, just it would tweak again, it would lock and you're back at square one. So you go ahead one step back two steps. And it came to the point where I realized I basically have to do something about this. It's not one of those injuries that's just going to go away with physio and time. And because jujitsu is my job, I need to do this quick. So what I did was I tried to use logic with that. I didn't, uh, you know, I was depressed. I, I was in a negative state, but I, try, I, I thought to myself, that's not going to do me any good. So what are the steps that I can do to get things going? Well, I started getting an MRI happening right away. I considered my options. I could do nothing and, you know, leave myself open to my knee, just getting tweaked over and over and probably never roll the same. I could get some of my meniscus removed and I would have hopefully good results. Uh, I could start doing steroids crossed my I mind. was actually going to make a joke and say, you should just get juice to the gills. But. Well, I'm not going to lie. It crossed my mind because my job at the time was jujitsu, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, so, so I sort of laid out my options on the table and then I thought the best thing to do would be to get the surgery. And it's, it's been amazing. Uh, and also making good habits from that moment forward, doing my physio, doing uh, prehab and strength training and lifting and all that stuff that's, uh, that goes along with longevity in the sport. It became a real priority for me. Whereas before the injury, it wasn't a priority for me. Mm-hmm. It was just sort of a thing that, uh, you know, I thought that was reserved for injuries. And now I look at it as like, uh, like I mentioned before, it's an investment in your own physical well-being. is, you know, are your stabilizers activated? Do you have, can you lift, you know, do you know how to lift properly? And are you doing your physio and all that stuff? So it, it really does add up. So I learned a lot from that experience, even though maybe I missed a month, maybe two months of jujitsu altogether. I gained a lot in my perspective. And now next time I get injured, I know that, okay, instead of freaking out about it and stressing and wondering, am I ever going to get to do this again? I know I have options. I know I have logical decisions to make that will steer me in a direction so that I can train my efforts on one direction rather than just, you know, being negative and and thinking that this is it for me. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that everyone needs to understand, like every, every crisis is different, but one thing that is universal is that when you are faced with a crisis, freaking out and panicking never helps. There is never a situation where freaking out and panicking is productive. So even though that might be your natural inclination, you need to have a moment of self-awareness and realize, I can't do this. I need to to act. And coming up with a plan of action, uh, analyzing the situation and coming up with a plan of action mm-hmm. and then acting is yeah. one of the most productive things you can do because that's how you turn a negative experience like that, a disaster, into something that ultimately you'll look back on as a positive or as something, even if it's not a positive, it's something that you at least got, you at least learned from and you grew from. I mean, I know a lot of people who for one reason or another – 
were no longer able to train at the gym they trade at. You know, maybe there was like a falling out with the instructor or maybe the gym closed down or they were forced to move. And as a result, they were forced to, to, to act. And the decision they might've made was, would be to create their own gym. And for a lot of those people, they're super happy, successful gym owners now. And it was that, that crisis that forced them into a situation to act. So one of the things about crises is that they, yes, they're a disaster, but they give everyone the opportunity to act and to grow from, and to do things that they normally wouldn't do, to take action that they normally wouldn't do because they're so comfortable. Um, there's a, a, there's a story. I mean, if you've ever, if you've ever gone to like a store and bought Tylenol or something, and you've noticed that like all, everything is sealed, if you've ever wondered why, whenever you go to a store and buy everything and it's sealed, it's because of an incident that I think happened back in the eighties where people started dropping dead after taking Tylenol. And, um, what Tylenol did was basically they owned the whole situation. They, they went into like crisis mode. They put together an amazing action plan. They basically owned the whole situation. And at the end of the day, it turned out it wasn't even their fault. Some asshole was actually going into stores and lacing Tylenol with cyanide. So it actually wasn't even anything they did, but they were able to own the messaging. And as a result, now when you buy these things, they're all pre-sealed so that people can't do stuff like that. But that particular type of situation is called a Tylenol moment. Basically what, you know, when you are faced with a disastrous moment, that can be your Tylenol moment. That can be your opportunity to go above and beyond and achieve something that you never thought you'd have the opportunity to achieve. And this, I mean, in a lot of ways, this is like that. I and mean, we're still very much in the early stages of this COVID-19 crisis, but look at how the jujitsu community has come together, right? I mean, I could open up my computer and get easily a thousand dollars worth of the best jujitsu instructional content ever made for free just because people gave it away. I've seen so many academies that have switched to, you know, offering virtual classes in lieu of real classes. Obviously that's not the same, but it's something, it's better than nothing. It keeps you sharp and taking action is a lot of the time, the best thing that you can do. Now, will, will you take the right action? It's, it's hard to say that's part of doing your analysis, right? You do do an analysis, try to take the best action that you can, but you might not, you know, in a, in a crisis, you might not do the right thing right away. You might have to pivot, but the worst thing you can do is nothing, right? The worst thing that's you can true. do is sit there and let the crisis happen to you. If you're an, if you're just a bystander in the situation, then you're not an agent in control. So in a situation of adversity, like what we're facing now, the best thing to do is to take bold action. Yeah. And, you know, we've talked about things like taking action, risk versus reward, planning, preparation, things like this when you're faced with adversity. One thing that we need to talk about more is really knowing where your support and your networking is and relying mm -hmm. on your community because... Um, you know, that injury that I spoke of from the second, the injury happened, I was relying on people like mm -hmm. people were carrying me off the mats, uh, take, uh, I had someone pick up my car. I had people take me to the hospital. I had people cover classes for me. <clears throat> you know, pe people were helping me in every aspect. I couldn't even walk. You know, I was on crutches. I couldn't, couldn't go to the shower easily. Couldn't go to the bathroom easily. I was relying on people everywhere and people were out coming out of the woodwork to help me. Now, maybe that was because people knew me. They knew I was a good guy. They wanted to help me or whatever. But for whatever reason, you really see who cares about you. And you really, uh, it really shows you the strength of community. Mm -hmm. And I think one thing that we're kind of getting away from is the power of community. Mm -hmm. Like we're, we're kind of losing, uh, we're taking it for granted, but in the jujitsu community, 
um, it's it's never been more evident. Like I'm really starting to see people come together. Like right now, there's uh, there's talks of joint seminars going on, and then the proceeds are going to the gym owners. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah to make up for wages lost or whatever. I got invited to do some seminars in the Vancouver area. Um, yesterday, a guy sent me an e-transfer, a guy that I, I barely know. And I, and I, I messaged him and I said, Hey, hey you know, I just, is this I, a hacker? I got, no, no, no. Well, it was kind of weird because this person is not a student of mine. Usually when I see an e-transfer, it's from a student. And I said, was that that weird thing you messaged me about? Uh, no, that was something else. Oh, that, that one was, that a was, a hacker. <laughs> it was very creative by the way. A hack uh, posing as a, an e-transfer, but no, this was actually legit. And so I messaged the guy and I said, "Hey, man, like uh, I got an e-transfer from you. Like, what's going on?" I, I figured maybe he wanted to do a private with me, but it would be weird to just send someone money without even first asking about privates or whatever. And then he said, "Yeah, man, you know this is a tough time. I know you're a gym owner. I know you closed down. He saw my post and he said, I just want you to know that like I just want to support you. So please accept the money." I was like, "Oh my god, that is." I think more valuable than the money itself was the, the sentiment behind it. And Mm -hmm. I just felt like this, we're going to be fine. Like no matter what happens, this community will back it back itself. I I remember um, one of my old instructors had, uh, has a son who needed a a really expensive surgery. And basically they did like a joint seminar thing where there was uh, three or four different instructors, Bibiano Fernandez, Philippe Matos, Mm -hmm. Rafael Laporta and myself, we all did a four part, seminar at Burnaby BJJ and the the uh the way that the community came together there must have been like a hundred people there it was mm-hmm. crazy so I think the jiu-jitsu community is such a tight-knit community and having communities like that in your life whether it's like a church or social clubs or whatever are really important and you find out in times of crises really how important that is and how they can help you get through Uh, moments of adversity. Yeah. And I've also been really pleasantly surprised by just these stories of, that I've seen of strangers helping strangers. Like I've, for example, in the, in the area where we live, there's like a local support group where people who live in our, in our group of towns can just go and basically post, Hey, I need this. Can someone help me? And there's stories of people Mm -hmm. like saying, uh, you, Oh, you need, you need like an N95 respirator mask. Give me your address. I'll be there right now. And I'll give you one. It's like, Holy moly. There are people online murdering each other to get those things. And then you just see people just giving those away for free to strangers. Like I, I mean, we, we see a lot of stupid bickering and I mean, frankly, like Dana White says, you know, people like to watch a fight, (laughs) you know, it gets a lot of attention, but I think we take for granted or forget how powerful humanity is when faced with a collective enemy and a collective crisis. And this is something we have never, again, seen in our lifetimes. And we're already starting to see, even before um, we're really hitting disaster zones here in Canada, we're already starting to see the power of collective community and people coming together. So it, it, that is actually the one reason why I think, I mean, individually, there are going to be bad times. There are going to be losses. Almost certainly, we're all going to know someone impacted by this thing. But at the end of the day, collectively, we're, we're going to be fine. I'm sure of it. Yeah, me too. And, and that's, it's interesting too, because right before the shutdown about a week ago, I would look online and all I would see is negativity, you know, mm-hmm. about how this is stupid. And, and I had a lot of these thoughts myself too, about how this is being overblown and all this stuff. Um, and it was a lot of back and forth bickering. And now that it's sort of happened and we're, it's here and we're facing it 
together as a unit, I'm seeing a lot more positivity online, actually. Yeah, it's kind yeah. of interesting. Like I'm seeing more posts about beauty. I'm seeing more posts about uh, positive things, people coming together, so people helping each other out. And it's, it's, or it's collective it's, planning, like how, rather than people yeah. bickering about whether we should have to do this or do that or calling each other names, they're basically coming together and saying, what can we do as a community? How can we help each other? It's a, it's interesting how like there was that at some point in the last week, there was just that tipping point where everyone basically said, okay, the die has been cast. Everyone get on the fucking boat. We got to do this together. It's really incredible how quickly human behavior can change when presented with a threat. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, I, you know, we see so much stupid behavior and just by watching the news, for example, and it really makes you kind of understand that underneath all of that, when presented with a real crisis, there's goodness there and people will support each other. Yeah. And we will get through this for yeah. sure. We're, this is something that we can beat and we will beat. And we're taking precautions right now. Right now, we're making the sacrifices needed to to beat this. You know, we're not doing jujitsu. We're not going to work. We're not seeing a lot of our loved ones. We're staying at home bottled up. And it sucks. But, you know, uh, it's, it's what we have to do. And we're going to get through it. We're going to yeah. be stronger from it, too. Yeah. And I extend the invite. I mean, we always do here. But, of course, we want to help all of you guys. If... If you have anything that you need, reach out to us. If there's anything that we could do to kind of help keep your game sharp or at least even just take your mind off of things, please share the suggestion. Even if you just want to talk. I mean, we reached out to a bunch of our uh, listeners the other day and just asked if anyone wanted to talk and share their stories. If you just want to get something off your chest during these difficult times, like we reply to every email, every message. So please do reach out and let us know if you have any thoughts that you want to share or if there's anything that we can do to help you out. I mean, you guys do, I mean, granted up until about a a month ago or a few days ago, actually, we never really asked for money, but you guys still just in terms of the support that you've always given has really powered us and helped us move along. And it's been really motivating that so many people have supported us over the last year as we got this thing off the ground and grew it to be one of the more prominent podcasts in the jujitsu community. Um, the interesting thing about our particular format is it might be something that becomes even more valuable when people are locked in at home because it's a very different way of learning. So if there's anything that you think we could do, we are open to suggestions for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Should we ask about the Q&A? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's a good point. So on, on that note, Matt and I have been talking about different ways that maybe we could fill the gap that has been taken away by real training. I mean, I know you guys don't need more instructional videos. I'm <laughs> so many instructionals right now. I'm yeah. sure your, your teachers probably, your, prob- your instructor probably has an online thing going on right now. If they don't, you have access to world-class online academies such as Rob's Cobrinas, Coyoteras, there's yeah, all these yeah. websites like we, but we want, we, we don't necessarily want to offer uh, like a, an online academy right now of sorts. We just, we were thinking maybe we could do like a Q and a or an online seminar just as our uh, token of appreciation. You got the, the listeners for free. Yeah. We'd like to maybe just put together something free for you guys. I am gr- granted we haven't done this before, so I'm sure that in the process of setting this up, we're going to screw it up because the internet's going to go crazy or something, or maybe we won't be able to fit everyone in. I don't quite know how to do this at this point, And I, I'm not totally sure on what the cost is going to be, but we do want to do something and maybe get together, have a, a Q&A with you guys. If there's anything that's been bugging you about your game that you just want to talk through, we'd be happy to maybe coach you through it and see if we can give you some advice. Um, additionally, as Matt mentioned, we've also thought about maybe doing a virtual seminar. There's some logistics to that, but if it's something that you guys would be interested in, please do let us know. Yeah. Or even just like an online Q&A or mm-hmm. even if you want to talk about other things like, you know, 
previous careers, things like that, or if it's totally jujitsu related, if you have questions about cooking, parenting, <laughs> you know, fun topics, the moon, no, but, uh, yeah, no, it, it would be fun and, and, you know, it would be a good way for us to give back and, uh, also become more interactive with you, the listener, and also sort of, you know, show you what, what is possible, uh, if it's something that you guys want us to keep doing. So, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Well, I mean, to kind of wrap this up, we're all going through adversity right now. I just encourage everyone to use adversity as a moment to maybe look at a look at your life, look at what opportunities are in front of you and find a way to take action that will that you can grow from. You know, I'll turn this into a situation where yes, it's terrible, but maybe it's something that we can all grow from and maybe Many years from now, when we reflect and look back on it, we'll realize that actually a lot of the things that came out of our lives that are good wouldn't have happened if not for this crisis. I mean, uh, uh, Viktor Frankl, we've talked about, talked about, wrote a, an amazing book called Man's Search for Meaning. And one of the things that he talks about in that book, he was a survivor of the concentration camps in World War II. And one of the things that he talks about is how, look, you can't always control what's going to happen to you. But the one thing that you can control is how you react to it. So that's kind of his big thesis in his incredible landmark book. And that's a mindset that we all need to have going into this crisis, that we can't control what's going to happen here. Um, not fully, but we can control our response. We can take action right now. Uh, we can listen to what the experts are telling us. We can implement social distancing. We can protect our friends and family, and we can come together as a community to support each other. Those are all things that we can do right now. So it's a, a tough, it's a tough time, but it's probably not as bleak as we think it is if we put some thought into it. Absolutely. Cool. Don't give up, stay positive and keep watching jujitsu. <laughs> Definitely. So to recap the mental models we talked about today, I mean, obviously we talked about growing from discomfort. That's really what adversity is all about. Yes, it can be terrible, but it's also an opportunity to grow and to learn and to expand beyond what you were before. We talked about return on investment. I mean, part of this conversation when dealing with adversity is you have to do an ROI calculation to understand, is this actually worth it? <laughs> because some types of, you know, some particular challenges, if there isn't a gain for you, if there isn't a benefit to moving in that direction, you need to rethink it. I mean, the example I give is skydiving. You know, that's just not something that interests me. But hey, if your values and your interests are different, you might feel otherwise. So whenever you're encountering adversity or you're thinking about making a difficult decision, do that planning, do a risk versus a reward analysis and just identify what paths of action are available to you and which one is the best one. And we also talked about defensive thinking. It's easy to shut down ideas and to close your mind and to just say no to everything. But there's opportunity in everything. And I would say use this opportunity to find ways to grow and expand beyond where you were before. Absolutely. So Matt, I got a question for you. I'd also love to hear about some of the adversities our listeners are going through. And that if we can offer you guys some advice from a point of reason and logic, it would be yeah. If you're struggling with any particular dilemma, I mean, you know, we love dilemmas on this podcast. Please do feel free to write in. We'd be happy to respond and share our feedback. Especially if you're like switching careers, that would be yeah. really interesting because I've gone through that. So have you. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's at first it's daunting, but it becomes kind of a, a fun thing. It does. It's something that you look back, like even a month after you've done it, you look back on it and you think to yourself, you know what? This wasn't so bad. Yes. Okay. All right. So here's the question. Uh, I sent you a message in the past after I injured my knee. Oop, 
smart person. I, yeah, I've since been this. This is the email that I, I believe we read a while ago with someone who had a bad knee injury. Does it I, say what it is? I don't recall off the top of my head. I think we already answered that question completely. So this one is different. Okay. I've since been working non-taxing positions and light rolling and have been slowly recovering. I want to thank you for your advice. I've got a bit of a different question for you guys, more of an odd question. I'm not sure how old you were when you started jujitsu or if you have experience dealing with younger people in BJJ that are almost adults, such as 15, 16, yep. 17, eight-year-olds. Yes, yes, we do. I'm on the younger side. I'm comfortable in my gym and I'm thankful that I've gotten to train with some of the truly great people, not only in their jujitsu, but in their character. This is not a common occurrence by any means, but it does come up and I'm never sure how to react. I get uncomfortable and uneasy every time it inevitably comes up. Don't worry, this is not going where you think it is going. Taint. <laughs> no. When I first started, I didn't give my age unless I was asked. I wasn't asked for a while because it never came up. Most have said they guessed me to be around 25, 28. I was and am in the 15 to 18 year old range. I went straight into the adult classes when I joined and wouldn't have had it any other way. All was good for a while, and all still is, but every once in a while something similar to this would come up. I was training one night and questions were being answered. Someone said something along the lines of an adult correlation, nothing gruesome or anything, just a joke that only adults would understand. I'm old enough to understand most jokes or gruesome humor and all of that, and it doesn't bother me in the slightest. I react the same way as anyone else would, from what I can tell, but after some adult joke was said, someone else piped up, hey, you can't say that, there's a blank year old in here. I'd understand if it was joking, and I, I wouldn't be emailing you if this was a, a, not a concern. It'd be a funny joke. Honestly, I get that joke a lot, and it's actually a good comeback to most things. But this was said in a serious tone. Luckily, someone else kind of saved the moment and stopped by saying, ah, this person has definitely heard worse. Every <laughs> it sounds like a conversation that happens in my gym. Yeah. <laughs> Every, everyone laughed it off, myself included. This is one instance, but there's been a few. Not enough for me to be largely concerned, but it definitely makes me uneasy every time this comes up. Mm -hmm. I consider these guys to be above me in every regard, at least as people, since I look up to them so much and I've made my own fair share of mistakes. I apologize if this is turning into a rant or a drawn out question, but I almost feel inferior simply due to my age now. Even if it's not blat fully blatant, I can almost detect it at times when they talk to me versus someone who is older. I know this is a bit of an odd question and almost a little off topic from the podcast, but I just don't have any idea how to handle these situations or what to do. I'm not extraordinary by any means, but I've had a little bit of experience and I'd be glad to have even more once I officially become an adult. I've traveled across the country, played different sports, have had several professional certifications, gone to different training camps and seminars, and stayed long-term in several different places. I look at this now, and it looks as if I'm trying to boast. I apologize that it looks that way. I'm definitely not the person to be asking this question, and I fully understand that people who are older generally have more experience. But every time this comes up, I get uncomfortable and end up thinking about it usually for a couple of days. I don't know how to respond. I try my best to act as mature as possible, and I just want to be treated the same as an adult. I wouldn't be saying all of this if I knew you guys personally, and I guess that's the benefit of being at least somewhat anonymous. Any advice is appreciated. It's just just been an odd situation all around. So this person is basically a, a minor and it sounds like the main concern is they feel like they're being treated like a second class citizen in the gym and they're of the age where they're almost an adult. So this is even further frustrating because we're not talking about a 10 year old here. We're talking about someone who within a, a few years or a year or two will be of legal age. So I can, I can fully relate and understand. I mean, as you know, we all remember what it's like being young and it sucks when you get treated like a second class citizen by the adults in the room that you respect. Yeah. It's a, it's a very real thing, especially when you're on the cusp of, 
of becoming an adult and you know the last decade of your life you've basically dreamed about the moment that you're going to be old enough that you get validated as humans all we really want is validation um and it sounds to me like you're a very mature person with very good self-awareness uh very well spoken and um you know just know that i'm pretty sure nobody thinks of you as a second class citizen uh, it's a very real thing. There, there's a kid at my gym who's 15 years old, but he's huge and very athletic and very good. Um, most people think he's like 10 years older than what he is, but he's he's still fi- like 15, you know. And and uh, we forget how how old he is sometimes just because of his physical stature and the way that he conducts himself. And uh, you know, I I have an atmosphere at my school where we do make jokes sometimes on the inappropriate side. Um, we all laugh it off. We all have fun with it. And then every now and then someone does say, Hey, this guy's 15 or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's, it's a real thing. Um, just know that when that happens, nobody is looking at you as a second class citizen. In fact, that is probably just a defense mechanism for somebody making a comment and then realizing, Oh, I shouldn't be saying that around someone who is 15. But yeah. at the same time, that doesn't mean that they think you're a second class citizen. And, to be honest, they probably respect you a lot more than certain people because you're attending an adult class and you're not technically an adult. And I'm sure you're a pleasure to be around because it sounds like you're a a very mature person with a level head. Uh, My recommendation would be to uh, simply laugh this off and definitely don't develop a complex over it because in two to three years, you're going to be an adult technically, even though you sound pretty much like an adult right now. And none of this will matter. Uh, And I'll just let you know that when you become an adult, things get shittier. (laughs) Things start falling apart. Your responsibilities go up, you know, your physicality gets lower. Um, but it'll be really fun for you over the next decade as you start to enter your prime and hopefully you stick with jujitsu. Um, and just know that you're not looked at as a second class citizen. At least I don't think that's the case. Yeah. And I think pretty clearly from your email, you know, that that's not the case. You're just looking for a second opinion on this. And I would agree completely that it is not the case that these people view you as a second class citizen. In fact, realistically, it's not that they're looking down on you. It's that they realized they did something that they shouldn't have done. Exactly. That was not good behavior. And you were just kind of the the thing that made them realize that. And it's not that they, they're looking down on you. They're probably realistically looking down on themselves oh, and their own sure. behavior. That's hundred um, percent what it is. Yeah. But that said, I still know how you could feel like, you know, you're not being kind of included in the group and it, it sucks. You know, as, as someone who has, looks a lot younger than he actually is, like I'm almost 40 and I still get carded at the liquor store every time I go. It has been a problem for me because even even at work, like it's hard to get taken seriously when you look like 10, 20 years younger than everybody mm. else. Uh, so I, I can fully relate to the frustration there. I would say that if, if it really is a problem, I mean, in, in this case, I don't think it is. And I would I would be inclined to just laugh it off and roll with the punches. But if it does, That's become, what I would do. But if it does, if it really does bother you then one thing that you can do is you can just talk to them about it. I mean, if you want to be perceived as an adult, then you can talk to them as an adult would. And an adult would say like, hey, can you just please include me in the group here? I just want to be, you know, I I don't, I know that I'm young, but like, please don't treat me any differently. I just, I just want to be part of the team. Um, An adult would talk like that and they, they would be, respected for that. I think that one thing that one thing that kids do or or young people do is they, yes, they, they don't want to be treated any differently, but they instinctually act deferential in front of adults. I've noticed this a lot where like when I'm training in a class, there'll be like a 17 year old and he'll act deferential to me. And it's like, dude, 
You know, if you're like a competent blue belt already, you know, you don't need to act like I'm like so far above you. It's fine. People do that when you get your black belt though. They do. It's really weird. It it is really weird. Like as a cook, I couldn't get any respect. I literally (laughs) felt like a second class citizen at at the hotel I was working at. Like thankless job. People are making more money than you are, you know, in the same sort of in in the hospitality industry, you know, they're taking home more money than you are. You're working your ass off. You're never getting thank you. Your hours are getting cut, all this shit. Then I became a jujitsu instructor as a black belt. Like when you become a black belt, it's crazy the amount of respect you get. It is, people people it is call weird. you sir. They call you professor. Yeah. They will believe anything you tell them. <laughs> yeah, they'll which, literally which, believe anything you tell which, them. Which is actually super duper dangerous. And I mean, we've talked with Rob about this, about the importance of checking that privilege. But yeah. people will believe anything you tell them when you're a black belt. Yeah, like like I don't know, I don't know what rank this person is. I'm assuming they're probably like a green belt or a white belt or poss- possibly a blue belt. Who, who knows what level they're at? But, um, you know. You've got a few years ahead of you before, uh, or where you're still looking for that validation. And my goal is to just, uh, or sorry, my advice is to just, you know, everyone wants to be validated, but never make that kind of your main goal. Yeah. Make your main goal being good at jujitsu, uh, you know, developing whatever, whatever your goals are in the sport, whether you're just a, you know, a recreational person, or if you want to actually become an instructor one day, if that's the case, focus on how you can become a really good instructor, you know, do competitions. Don't worry about people, what they think of you. Don't worry Mm -hmm. about the validation. If you put your nose to the grindstone and you're a good person, the validation will come. And for the next decade or however long it takes you to reach black belt, um, you're going to be, you know, you're not going to have that validation, but then one day you're going to get your brown belt and people are going to start really looking up to you in the training room. And then you're going to get your black belt and everyone's going to start to know who you are in your community. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you're going to get so much validation that you're going to be like, hey, this is kind of ridiculous. Yeah, like, yeah. That's kind of... It's completely unearned. It's hilarious. That's exactly how I feel. When I go to tournaments, people are calling me professor. I'm like, dude, my name's Matt. Like, <laughs> you literally called me Matt like a year ago. But yeah. now that I'm a black belt, you call me professor. Like, it's weird, you know? Yeah. Um, and another thing to think about is if you are an instructor who's a black belt, you have in a way earned that title because mm-hmm. you have dedicated a lot of time to the art of sharing jujitsu and, and grappling and whatnot. So in a way, yes, you are a professor. I realize professor is just a term, uh, a word for teacher in Portuguese, but at the same time, it's like, you know, guys, we're ju- we just do jujitsu. It's yeah, not like yeah, we're yeah. a, it's not like I'm a fucking doctor or something. <laughs> I'm not a Nobel peace prize person so we should be for this podcast yeah, our maybe, contributions to the community yeah, maybe one day yeah. but yeah don't stress it just la- i would recommend laugh it off and like steve said the adult thing to do if it does bother you is hey hey guys like i can handle it you know yeah yeah but one one thing to bear in mind if you when you do have that conversation if you do have that conversation with people they might refuse and they might say look i'm just not comfortable having this conversation in front of you we're talking like this in front of you if that happens don't take offense to that because there are there are good reasons why a person might feel that way. First of all, it might just be part of their moral compass. They might just have been raised in such a way that they just aren't comfortable talking like that in front of a kid. And I mean, these are these are people who are fundamentally are believing good things here. You don't want to hold that against them. And also another thing to bear in mind is that like there's a lot of legal liability for the things that you say and do in front of a minor. Yeah, so, true. you know, if these people may be concerned about breaking the law, they may be concerned about saying something that could be construed the wrong way or very inappropriately. So they, they have good reason to be guarding their words and it's not because they disrespect you. It's just for the reasons that we outlined here. So please don't interpret it that way. Maybe we should do a future episode on validation. 
it's an interesting topic. That'd be a good actually. one, actually. And how we all sort of crave it. Yeah, it's true. Hey, according to beltchecker.com, I am British Columbia's most validated and therefore best black belt. You know who's <laughs> therefore, you, best. therefore best. You know who's number two? Who? Rory Van Vliet. Really? Yes. Well, that's legit. He he does a lot of videos and stuff. Even be, even the head of Rob. I assume Rob doesn't. Rob's do not on there. No. Rory's on there though. Rory's on there, and I'm the head of him. So for those of you who I just heard about this the other day when somebody actually asked if if they could if I could validate them, I'm like, what are you talking about? I do validate <laughs> you every time someone talks about you. They're like, no, no, no. There's this thing called Belt Checker, and basically it's a database where you know people can vouch for you and give you a rating based on how. I guess, legit you are or how good of a person you are. And, and the goal is to weed out the fake black belts, I guess. Yeah, right? yeah. It's it's basically intended to be a less monopolized equivalent to the IBJJF registry, right? Which is a, let's be honest, it's a racket. I mean, I'd actually love to do a whole episode on that. But basically the idea is it's a democratized registration system. So you yeah. go on there, they independently verify your identity. Um, and then the community, based on what you've provided, they and, and the people that you know, they basically say, hey, is this person, is this person legitimate or not? And that's how you get validated. It's run by the same guy who runs BJJ Globetrotters. So it's a, you know, this is a guy who's given a ton back to the community. It's a really cool site. So I I actually registered. They even sent me a little like ID card that's got my photo and really? says Steve Quant Black Belt. I'm totally going to use that next time I get carded at the liquor store. <laughs> See, I just, I just don't, I have some issues with it. Like when I was asked to validate my buddy, I was like, man. But you're no good. <laughs> no, no, no. He is good. It was just that I knew that if I was to do that, I would have to create an account for myself. That's which means, Which means that I now am in the race for validation. And I just literally, that's what turned me off is I'm like, well, I just don't want to be in this, this rat race where I'm now trying to get validated from people. The truth is, my validation comes from things like my competition history and being a good person and the podcast and things like that, not from uh, an online data database. So I, I decided I didn't want to be a part of it specifically because I didn't want people to be validating me. And, and because I think there's flaws in the system. Like I think depending on who you know, you could be a shitty black belt but get validated by oh, yeah. a lot of people. So it could therefore easily... does that not defeat the purpose of it? Yeah, it could easily be taken hostage as a popularity contest, right? Absolutely. It depends on what this thing is going to be used for. If it's going to basically turn into like Facebook for jujitsu where popular people get a lot of attention, that's not good. But I think that's sort of what it is. If on the other hand, it can become an independent alternative to the IBJJF registration system, I'm all for that because the, the steps that they make you jump through and the expectations that they have, like it's, it's like... I don't know if it's exactly a pyramid scheme, but it really feels like it. No, like, it, well, it is a pyramid scheme because it will never it will never replace or supplement the IBJJF system. The reason the IBJJF system is there is so you can literally use their services and compete at their tournaments. There's no way you're there, even if your rating is the highest on on belt checker, they're not gonna IBJJF is not gonna let you compete in their tournaments because that says you're legit. No, no, it's the only this would only happen if an uh, alternative tournament format came up. Like if basically IBJJF had a legitimate competitor, but that's probably a topic for another day. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, my, if there's any lesson to be learned from this that I can see, it's don't, don't make validation your, your end goal. Validation should come once you've accomplished goals and achievements and skills and, and created and uh, collected accolades and things like that, that is true but it is important to note that i am significantly more validated and, and therefore rory. better than rory so fuck you rory 
Fuck you, Rory. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> no, we love Rory. Um, actually, we should probably plug uh, both your and his uh, instructionals with Stefan Casting. Stefan is offering a... Now, granted, I think he's a bit backed up with the requests, but he's yeah, offering... He's doing it all by email? <laughs> he's doing it like, manually. Jesus, dude. Yeah, what, I don't know what he's thinking, um, but if you reach out to the Grapple Art support, you can request a free instructional and he'll give it to you. And of course, that includes Matt's, that includes Rory's. So... Yeah. If you want to benefit from some top-tier structured grappling knowledge, you can do that for free, and hopefully that fills the void. Yeah, Oliver Taza's got a, his leg lock one on there. I've, I haven't watched the whole thing, but I've, I've enjoyed what I have watched. Oliver's really influenced my game in the last uh, few months that I've trained with him. Excellent, excellent grappler. Great instructor, too. I recommend checking out his instructional. And also, Rob's got the submission formula on there, too. Yeah. Basically, break down how and why you're doing certain mechanics in submissions and how you can increase your finishing rate. So yeah. all those instructionals are great. Uh, definitely take this time guys to try and benefit your knowledge in jujitsu and get some free instructions. Yeah, there's always ways that you can improve. Now we've got a roadblock ahead of us in front of in, in-person training, but there's always ways that you can improve. The tools are there. So use this time wisely. Don't waste it. Cool. Right. So um, if you're tired of all of that free content and you want to actually pay for something, of course, we have plugged this earlier, but you can support us on our Patreon, patreon.com slash BJJ Mental Models. I cannot tell you how much we would appreciate your support there. It would really make a difference to us during this difficult time. So please do support us there. Um, you can also go to bjjmentalmodels.com slash store, pick up our gi patches and our t-shirts. Again, another way to support us. You can go to bjjmentalmodels.com slash join, where you can sign up for our mailing list. This is where we send extended content that we don't cover on the podcast. Uh, you can also just go to bjjmentalmodels.com, just the homepage. That's where we have a database of all of the concepts that we discuss here on the show. And of course, you can reach out to us on Facebook and on Instagram if you want to talk to us, as well as using the sign up for or the contact form on the website yeah. matt Good anything job. else no that's it we covered everything from adversity to richard gears asshole to rory van vliet and how i am way way better than him just objectively data driven i am better and more respected than him richard gear took a conceptual approach to, uh, to <laughs> gerbling yeah richard, he uses wedges <laughs> is, is this inversion like base is did, did richard gear use the inversion mental model i think he may have technically it's like use the taint sweep in reverse yeah. you know apparently this has been de debunked and people say that this actually isn't true and richard gear didn't do that but I don't want to live in a world where that's not true. <laughs> Everyone knows about who debunked that Richard Gear. <laughs> yeah, how, how can you prove he never stuck a hamster up his butt? Like, how can you prove that? So I'm just going to assume that he did. Who debunks that? <laughs> I don't know. Probably Snopes or something. Okay. Well, thanks a lot, guys. I mean, I know that it's becoming a meme to say be safe out there, but seriously, please do. Yeah. All right. Take talk care, guys. Talk to you next time. Bye.